Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's Western Germany, which is over 2,000 years old. But before it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. It can therefore be seen as a kind of microcosm of European history. Here you can listen to the city grow, chronologically from the Romans to our present time. What is this episode about? We look back at Frankish Cologne, 500 years after all. We did this back then about the Roman era as well. I think that now with the final assumption of power by the archbishops of Cologne as lords of the city in 953 and the end of the Frankish dynasties ruling in the East Frankish Empire, this is a good point to do this. Unlike the Romans, however, the Franks did not perish and disappear. The Franks first became the West and East Franks, which in the long run became the French and the Germans. Very, very simplified spoken. Here, no civilizational upheaval took place as at the end of the Roman rule on the Rhine with loss of technology and science and whatever. On the contrary, the transitions here were fluid. To the contemporaries of that time, this may not have been so directly apparent that now a new era would start, because we, as historical researchers, set these milestones in retrospect. And that's what we are going to do here, now, in this moment. So again, 500 years have passed since the fall of the Roman Empire. So let's take a look back, perhaps mention things that may have been neglected so far, and then, of course, we dare to look forward. What had happened since the end of Roman rule here in the Rhineland? Well, unfortunately, we do not know exactly. Presumably, it was the case that the Roman exercise of power on the Rhine weakened more and more during the end of the 4th century. The Romans tried to fill the power vacuum with local allied Frankish units that were resettled in the Roman Rhineland. But the Roman Empire was not able to cope with the enormous strains and challenges. In the 5th century, it disintegrated into a western and eastern part, then Probably in the first half of the 5th century, the Roman troops withdrew from the Rhineland, and until the end of the 5th century, we actually do not know much about what happened here on the Rhine. It is probable that the Frankish tribes, once settled here as allies of the Romans, simply filled the power vacuum when the Roman army left. With the provincial Gallo-Roman population and the Roman Christian church alive, new several Frankish petty kingdoms emerged here. King Sigibert of Cologne is representative of this development. As king of the so-called Rhine Franks, he probably resided in the Praetorium in Cologne, the former Roman governor's seat in the city. His kingdom may not have been larger than the today's northern German Rhineland. With the help of another Frankish petty king named Klotwig, Sigibert crushed the Alemanni at the Battle of Zülpich in the year 496 a stone's throw southwest of Cologne. Klotwig, the ruler of a Frankish petty kingdom in what is now the Belgian-French borderland, had vowed at the battle to convert to Catholic Christianity if he won. 
Since this happened, according to tribal tradition, not only Klotwig, but large parts of the Frankish nobility were baptized Christian in one fell swoop. A clever move by Klotwig. Now the largely Christian subjects of the Franks also had a now largely Christian political military ruling class. This diminished the religious tensions between the previously pagan rulers and the largely Christianized people. Sigibert's star, however, began to decline rapidly. He had emerged wounded from the Battle of Zülpich against the Alemanni, a circumstance that would later earn him the nickname the Lame or the Cripple. Really not flattering. Klotwig, who wanted to become the ruler of all Franks, took the opportunity to incite Sigibert's son to kill his father, which he did while his daddy was hunting outside of Cologne. What the son of the king of Cologne had not considered, Klotwig would also eliminate him as well. Shortly after the patricide, the son followed his father to death himself. In Cologne, in front of today's basilica and church of St. Gerion, Klotwig had himself raised by the citizens of Cologne as king of all the Franks. Clotric, through numerous conquests in a short time, created an empire which included almost all of today's France, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, parts of Switzerland, and the present part of Western Germany. Clotric's death in 511, however, caused the Frankish Empire to disintegrate. For centuries now, Frankish empires united and disintegrated at what felt like a minute intervals. Frankish tradition dictated that when a ruler died, his kingdom was to be divided among all his sons, and not as practiced later only to the oldest son. This led in part to strong fragmentations of Frankish royal rule. This already started with Clotwig. He had four sons, so four new kingdoms after his death. Oh my. It is true that the Frankish Empire was never divided de jure, but only the rule was divided. Nevertheless, the Merovingians, the name of the dynasty that Clotwig came from, always loved to fight over who ruled where and how. Much remains unclear in the early Frankish period of Cologne. What is the legal status of the people here? How much Roman provincial population and their descendants still existed in the city? And how big was the share of the new Franks living here? They are often only short and small glimpses for this time. As with the biography of Bishop Cunibert, who led the Cologne bishopric for much of the 7th century. His friendship and loyalty to the Frankish kings of his time say something about how church and kingship increasingly deepens their political cooperation. Archaeology is often the only reliable partner here. For some years now, excavations have completely refuted the older thesis that Cologne was insignificant in the Frankish period of the early Middle Ages. Excavations on today's Heumarkt Square, for example, the construction of new subway lines, but also excavating under the Cologne Cathedral after World War II, speak a very clear picture. Cologne was continuously 
populated and although as incidentally in all of europe with temporarily lower population than roman times an important city of the frankish world numerous church buildings which in the course of time were endowed with donations and privileges have their origin in this time already churches and then also monasteries that developed from them were more than just places of faith as they are nowadays in the middle ages knowledge was also preserved increased and taught there business enterprises along with trades production facilities and even inns made churches and monasteries the great economic enterprises of their time while the rest of the vast rural population for example is mainly doing subsistence farming the numerous divisions of the frankish empire and civil wars caused the merovingian dynasty to become weaker and weaker in the late 7th century the court officials at the respective merovingian royal courts gained more and more importance they became the secret true rulers at the end of the merovingian dynasty especially the so-called mayors of the palace the respective heads of a frankish royal court were more and more regarded as the secret kings as puppeteers of the actual political weak merovingian kings thus slowly but steadily a new frankish dynasty emerged that of the later carolingians named after charles the great they partly provided the mayor of the palace at several merovingian courts cologne is also an important milestone in this development the frankish mayor of the palace widow plectrude ruled a significant part of the eastern frankish empire even from cologne after the death of her husband in her residence in the former roman temple district in cologne in the southeast corner of the city today's near today's heumarkt she directed the fortunes of her frankish subkingdom here she founded the later church and convent of saint mary in the capital where she was also later buried her sarcophagus can still be seen there today however her body has been considered lost since the second world war Plectrude's reign ended in 717 however when her stepson Charles Mortel politically deprived her Charles the Great's grandfather enormously expanded his power as mayor of the palace of the Merovingian kings however he did not yet reach for the royal crown only his son Pepin the Short did so funny name isn't it remember those epithets were given often way later and not during the lifetime of a ruler Pepin sent the last Merovingian king to a monastery as a simple monk and now officially took over the reign as king of all the Franks. His son Charles will lead the Frankish Empire to its greatest expansion in over 45 years of reign between 768 and 840. He went down in history as Emperor Charles the Great. He was like the medieval Caesar. After his death, Every king in Europe at least once in his life wanted to be the new Charles up until Napoleon a thousand years later. Maybe you know this famous painting of Napoleon where he crosses the Alps on horseback striking a heroic pose. I had this poster of him that I bought in Paris uh, hanging over my bed when I was a child. On the ground Napoleon has next to Hannibal and his own name Charles the Great's name written. Even though Aachen, located to the west of Cologne, is Charles's favorite residence, 
Cologne owes a great deal to the greatest of all Frankish rulers for its later development. Through a personal friendship with the Bishop of Cologne, Hildebold, Charles made Cologne the seat of an archbishopric in keeping with his understanding of his time as a Christian ruler. From now on, from the year 800 onwards, the Archbishop of Cologne directs the area between the rivers Northern Rhine and Weser with enormous spiritual but also political power. Several bishoprics in what is now northern Germany as well as Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg and parts of what is now northeastern France are under the spiritual control of the Archbishop of Cologne. In the missionary work of the still mostly pagan people in the area of the River Elbe, Cologne is at the forefront. These effects can also be clearly felt in Cologne's cityscape. Increased economic and lively building activity, such as the old Cologne Cathedral, the predecessor of today's Gothic Cologne Cathedral, were started and completed in the 9th century. With the old cathedral stood in Cologne one of the largest churches in Europe in the architectural style of the Romanesque, north of the Alps, which had quite the claim to pull at least, in terms of rank, almost equal to the church buildings in Rome. As cool as Charles the Great was, his descendants were not. The Carolingians were also plagued by similar problems as the Merovingians before them. Charles the Great's heirs too always divided the empire among their respective sons after the death of a ruler. Thus, Charles the Great's empire disintegrates again in a short time after 843, first in three but then also in more parts. Civil wars, but also external dangers such as that of the invading Vikings and the Hungarians, threatened the Rhineland at the end of the 9th and early 10th century. Cologne belonged at this time first to a Frankish middle kingdom called Lorraine or Lotharingia, because the rulers of this entity, which stretched from Italy to the North Sea, were called Lothar. The archbishops of Cologne were always important political advisors to these loafers and held important offices in the royal court. But internal instability and a not so well executed marriage policy of King Lothar II, in which the Archbishop of Cologne Gunther participated diligently to such an impudent extent that even the Pope in Rome tried to depose him, made this Frankish Middle Kingdom an easy prey after Lothar's death in 869. In 870, the following year, half of it was swallowed by the West and the other half by the East Frankish Empire. And Cologne became part of the East Frankish Empire for now. The low point for Cologne in the Carolingian period is reached at the beginning of the 880s, when the Vikings roamed the Rhineland, plundering. Cologne itself was also plundered, as well as almost all other cities, towns and villages in the Rhineland. The paradox here is, although the few available historical sources report severe destruction in the city of Cologne, there is no real archaeological evidence of it. Buildings such as the Church of St. Gerion or the Old Cathedral itself remain intact, a mystery that remains to this day. 
for here were the Vikings historically proven after all. In the year 911, the Carolingian dynasty died out in the East Frankish Empire to which Cologne belonged. When the nobles of the East Frankish Empire, especially the dukes from Saxony, Bavaria and Swabia, who had become more and more powerful in times of crisis, elected a new king who was Frankish but not a Carolingian, instead of transferring the kingship to the West Frankish rulers, had been the tradition up to then, this represented a breach of taboo in the early medieval world. For Cologne, this period is politically a changeful time. The territory to which Cologne belonged was the Duchy of Lorraine, which, after this election of a non-Carolingian king, split off from the Eastern Empire and joined the Western Frankish Empire, later medieval France. However, only for a few years. Because there's a reason why German and not French is spoken in Cologne. This Frankish, non-Carolingian king in the East Frankish Empire named Konrad lived only a few years. According to legend, while still on his deathbed in December 918, Conrad transferred the kingship to the Duke of Saxony, who henceforth ruled the East Frankish Empire as Henry I. He and his successors from the later called Saxon-Ottonian dynasty were to form the Holy Roman Empire from the East Frankish Empire. Thus, the separation with the West Frankish Empire, or rather France from then on, was completed in the long run. King Henry acted promptly and exploited the weaknesses of his western neighbor France, who was embroiled in internal conflicts. Henry reconquered the rich Lorraine region, including Cologne and Aachen, for himself by 925 without much effort. Cologne, as so often, had changed sides without any bloodshed or destruction. Lorraine, even though later in a diminished geographical form, nowadays the region around Metz in France, would be a constant, unfortunately often bloody bone of contention between Germany and France until the 20th century. Henry's son and successor, Emperor Otto I, secured Lorraine for his empire in the long term by installing his younger brother Bruno here in Cologne in the middle of the 10th century, as Archbishop and also as Duke of Lorraine. Thus secular and ecclesiastical power on the Rhine and in the city had finally been interwoven officially. This development made Cologne in the 10th century undoubtedly one of the most important, if not the most important cities of the empire, despite already being the biggest city in medieval Germany already. From now on, as we will examine in more detail in the next installment, Cologne's nearly 300-year era began under the direct secular rule of the archbishops of Cologne, who not only exercised a spiritual office here in Cologne and celebrated divine services on Sundays, but were also princes of the empire, so-called prince-bishops. All the people of Cologne were now direct subjects of the archbishop. We will soon find out how cool they actually thought that was. So, we have made the arc from the end of the Roman period in the 5th century to the Ottonians in the 10th century. Let's take a breath before we continue.
are some things I still want to illuminate regardless of the chronology of events. What we can observe in Cologne in Frankish times is that from the very beginning the survival of the Roman Church, or the Catholic Church as we would rather say nowadays, was formative and groundbreaking for the city. The bishopric structures that still dated from Roman times had survived the end of the Roman Empire. They had often already taken over administrative tasks regionally in the times of the disintegration of the Roman Empire and its central power. A development that can also be observed in the other former Roman cities in the Rhineland with episcopal seats such as Mainz and Trier. But this continuity also confirms what numerous archaeological excavations in the city area have brought to light in recent decades. Cologne came through the period of upheaval that accompanied the fall of the Roman Empire quite well, especially in comparison to other cities. Frankish nobles had themselves buried here early on in the midst of the still largely Christian Gallo-Roman population, like in the area of today's Church of St. Severin or under the Cologne Cathedral. The area of today's Heumacht Square was dotted with new Frankish settlements within the Roman city. Due to the silting up of the branch of the Rhine, new building land had only arisen here in the late 4th century. Thus, the city even grew further to the east in the direction of the Rhine with its own harbour suburb, at a time when there was actually a general population decline in Europe. This is another indication that there was hardly any suitable building land available elsewhere in the city area within the walls, so the remaining area of the city continued to be either populated or at least used in some other kind of way like farming. Already in the times of the Merovingians, the city was important for the empire of the Franks. The active church building in and directly outside the city wall testifies to this in particular. Many churches that still exist in Cologne today have their origins in the Merovingian period. Cologne's peripheral location at the eastern end of the Frankish empire continued to be an advantage. The city continued to be considered a window into wider Europe east of the Rhine. When Charles the Great then subjugated the pagan Saxons in Cologne's immediate neighborhood, Cologne was one of the ideal starting points for further Christian missionary work and for the economic developments and integration of the newly conquered territories to the north and east of the city. Significant for the development of Cologne in the Frankish period were the bishops and later archbishops of Cologne. Personalities such as Kunibert, Hildebold, Gunther, Willibert, Hermann and Bruno are all representatives of this. Their often consciously sought proximity to the Frankish rulers automatically ensured that Cologne always remains politically and strategically relevant and important. Of course, the spiritual leaders of Cologne did not always do this for local patriotic reasons, but primarily for their own personal preservation and expansion of power. But so be it, the side effects were Cologne is important. The proximity of the archbishops of Cologne to the royal or imperial court was to last until the early 19th century. The citizens of Cologne would also take this as an example later when they themselves became politically aware as their own acting actor on the political stage from the 11th century onwards. But more on that in a moment. 
Actually, I thought here to list long-term general developments of the early Middle Ages in this section. For example, that the slave-holding society from antiquity changed to the feudal society in the early Middle Ages, but <sighs> that would be too much digressing. If you are still interested in this, I recommend one or two videos on YouTube in the show notes of this podcast episode. Or on my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com, where you can of course also see more backgrounds and pictures for this episode. Have a look. It is not clear to what extent this development from slaveholding society to feudal society applied to cities in general. Because just to make this clear again, the society of the early Middle Ages was largely shaped by agriculture in the countryside. The overwhelming majority of people lived as peasants in the countryside and made their living from agriculture with subsistence farming. All the kings, bishops, but also the Cologne inhabitants themselves are a very small proportion compared to the rest of the people who largely lived in Europe as farmers. All the kings, bishops, but also the Cologne inhabitants themselves are a very small proportion compared to the rest of the people who largely in Europe as farmers eke out their existence. This continued to be the case even in the late Middle Ages, around the year 1300 onwards, which followed an enormous previous phase of founding cities in Europe. Here still, more than 75% of the people continued to live in the countryside and not in cities, up until the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. Life in a city is thus rather a rarity throughout the Middle Ages. And even with the word city, we get into trouble. For the Middle Ages saw in the city rather a legal status and not, as we do today, something connected by high population density, division of labor inside the city, being a trade center with a political organizing unit and a certain form of self-government. No, according to medieval understanding, cities could also have only a dozen houses, as long as it had been granted corresponding city rights by its feudal lord. Or a city could have 50,000 inhabitants and thus be one of the largest cities of the Middle Ages, just like Cologne was. I told you, difficult topic, so... Check the show notes for more. Little do we know about the normal people in the city at that time, so to speak. Which I think is a real pity because I'm always interested in that. Historical sources of that time are mostly created only by the highest elite of the Frankish society. By kings, dukes, bishops and other high nobles. Of course this is not a coincidence. Only there was the knowledge and also the financial means at that time to produce appropriate documents, but also to store and protect them so that they were preserved in parts of posterity until our time. Nowadays, you can just grab a sheet of paper that is cheaply available, write your stuff on it, write your name on it. Hey, you, you can also write. <laughs> That's a, another thing as well and then you can put it into a box into the earth and hope that someday somebody will find it and use it as a historical source so easy is that in the early middle ages that was not possible for the common people 
but we also wanted to use this episode as a bit of an outlook. And as far as that topic is concerned, there will soon be a little improvement. The economic upswing of Cologne makes the normal people in the city more and more prosperous. At least a few of them. Merchants are becoming more and more able to read and write, as this is especially essential for doing long-distance trade. So it's not only the clergy anymore that is able to read and write. Soon, these merchants and wealthy citizens too will present their view of things. In the coming episodes, we will no longer encounter Cologne citizens merely as an unknown mass of people. It is true that here too, it is mostly the wealthy citizens of the city, but they too are part of the people who experience their daily lives on the streets of Cologne. For the omnipotence of the Archbishop of Cologne as the city's ruler will soon get more and more on the nerves of these wealthy Cologne citizens. In the late 11th century, a part of Cologne citizenry will therefore make itself heard quite loudly for the first time in the historical sources. The Jewish population of Cologne will also be given more contour. We know that they have lived here in Cologne since the 4th century, at the latest, still in Roman times. Whether the Jewish community existed continuously, however, has not yet been clarified, but it too will soon become much more tangible archaeologically and in the historical sources. Unfortunately, however, this will also be accompanied by a terrible wave of violence and death caused by the First Crusade, which will mainly target Jewish people. But of course, we will not completely depart from the previous historical sources. The respective archbishop governs the city, therefore we cannot ignore him for the further history of Cologne. Therefore, some episodes will again revolve entirely around the personalities of some of Cologne's archbishops. They are, after all, the kings of the city, so to speak. But I promise you, it won't be boring at all. The complex conflicts that the citizens and the respective archbishop of Cologne will have are sometimes the most exciting things that Cologne's city history has to offer, believe me. And I am so looking forward to telling it to you. And I'm so looking forward telling it to you. There will be an archbishop whom the people of Cologne will love because he humbly enters the city barefoot when he is elected as the new archbishop. Then there will be an archbishop, on the other hand, who will see the citizens of Cologne, including the city, as his own private property, who feels so powerful that he even dares to kidnap the Holy Roman Emperor himself and imprison him for several years, or at least put him under arrest, only to have to flee Cologne like a beaten dog at the end of his life, because even the archbishop, a servant of God, has limits on earth. Ah, That sounds exciting, doesn't it? I'm really looking forward to all these stories. I hope you'll be a part of it. That would make me very happy. How do we find the arc from this review episode to the next episode? 
Well, we still have to shed some light on Bruno's time as Archbishop of Cologne in the middle of the 10th century. The first episode about Bruno was more of an outline of him and his office as imperial prince and how he ruled from Cologne. But Bruno also had enormous impact on the city of Cologne itself, both politically for many centuries lasting but also in an urban style. The city panorama of Cologne is still shaped by him today. Whether you take the train over the Hohenzollern Bridge and the Rhine, or if you approach to Cologne Bonn Airport by plane. So be there next time too when we will take a closer look at Bruno as the supreme city ruler of Cologne. So let's get to the support your favorite podcast about the history of Cologne part. Subscribe and rate this podcast where possible so others can enjoy my voice and the history of the city as well like on Apple Podcasts and I think more recently on Spotify. Please do that, it just takes a few seconds. Follow me on social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter or TikTok. There you can find me as History of Cologne Podcast. There I not only post stuff about these episodes, but also about the history of Cologne in general, so I would recommend it to you. On my homepage, I always have pictures and background information for every single episode. This one as well, of course. Including an interactive city map where you can see where places and buildings, etc. can be found in today's cityscape of Cologne that get mentioned here in the show. And in my link tree in the show notes, you will find other ways how you can support this podcast, my one-man show, my hobby in the evening and on the weekends. At the end, thank you very much for my newest patron, Regina. Thank you very much for your additional financial support to keep this show running. It means the world for me. Thank you very, very much. And until then, to everyone else, thank you very much for listening. And auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>